This is episode number 55 of the Sonia Looney Show, my solo round talking about Japan. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories. And today, we're also going to talk about adventure. Thanks for listening to my show. I'm really happy that you guys are here. And today I'm trying something a little bit different. I just got back from a mountain bike race and travel experience in Japan. And a lot of times I write blogs and articles about my adventures, and I'm still planning to do that. But I wanted to do a play-by-play on the experience of being in Japan and share that with you because it was such a great time. The last month has been a total whirlwind. I was gone for an entire month. Actually, I was home for three days, but I was sick. So basically, I was gone for an entire month. And since Sea Otter in April, which is a race in Monterey, California, I've been to Nationals in Arkansas. I've been to Squamish a couple of times and then a nine-day stint in Japan. And I want to get into why I chose Japan in a moment. But first, I wanted to thank our podcast sponsor for today, Kuat Racks. It's K-U-A-T. And it's funny because I met the owners of Kuat Racks a long time ago at a mountain bike race in Arkansas, and the company is based in St. Louis. But these racks are amazing. So I've used lots of different types of bike racks. And before that, I would just take the backseat out of my car because I was afraid and didn't trust bike racks or myself using a rack. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I get nervous whenever I put my bike on the rack because your bike is expensive. It's like your baby. And the idea of it falling off your car while you're driving is a little bit unnerving. So the thing that I found the best about the Kuat racks is how easy they are to use. So number one, you can assemble them straight out of the box. It's very little assembly required. And the box is actually engineered and designed so that it makes assembly really easy. And then getting the bike on the rack, like you put it on and then a lot of times you kind of wiggle your bike and it doesn't seem like it's quite tight enough. But with the Kuat racks, the bikes seem really secure right away. So I've been really happy with my Kuat rack. I'm using the Sherpa, which has two trays on it, but you can also get the NV, which has four trays. Visit our friends kuatracks.com and check it all out. I think they're also making ski racks now too. I wanted to give a special thanks to everybody who is supporting my work financially on Patreon. And you can find the Patreon link in my show notes or it's patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show. And it's awesome to get that kind of support because I get to upgrade my equipment and bring on better quality guests and continue making this podcast better. And speaking of upgrading, this is my first podcast recording with my new microphone setup. And I'm not sure if you guys can hear the difference. I hope you can, but it's really exciting to get something that is more than just a starter microphone to increase your audio experience. There was some uh, inconsistencies with some of my episodes with the microphone sort of malfunctioning. So it's pretty cool to have a new one. And I'm still learning how to use everything properly. That's uh, one of the biggest points of resistance for me with technology. And it's funny because my background is in engineering. So you think that I would love learning how to use new technology, but I, I don't like spending time trying to figure out how to use things. I like to just take it out of the box and have it work. So I'm happy to say that I'm up and running with this, but there's definitely some more learning that's going to have to occur. I'm loving seeing you guys rocking the Moxie and Grit socks. Moxie and Grit, it's an apparel and sock brand that I started. Right now it's socks, but eventually it's going to branch into more apparel. 
And it's just been awesome to just see the smiles and the excitement and also just seeing you guys out there doing adventures. And it's cool because I'm trying to make this brand not just a brand about clothing, but about sharing adventures and stories and building basically a community. So I'm excited about this. So thanks so much, you guys, for doing the effing magical unicorn socks, the do epic shit socks. There's a new one coming out in about uh, two weeks or so. So stay tuned for that. And thanks for following us on Instagram at Moxie and Grit. All right. So I want to get into talking about Japan. And I'll start at the beginning as to why I was really excited about going to Japan. And that's because when I first moved to Colorado, that was in the infancy of my racing career. That was about 12 years ago. And I was racing collegiate for CU Cycling. And you race all the other local colleges and universities in the area. So I met a guy named Yuki Ikeda way back when. We were both new. And he and I ended up becoming amazing friends. And back when we were super, super broke, we would pile into cars with our friends. We'd have like seven people sleeping in uh, one hotel room. So our adventure started doing cross-country racing that way. But then things began evolving and our interests evolved in the same direction. And Yuki also does a lot of the same races that I do. So we've had a lot of the, the same life experiences and experienced the same countries and cultures and difficulty of these events. And he moved back to Japan several years ago. And when he moved back, he said, you have to come visit me in Japan. And you also have to come check out this race. It's the biggest marathon race in Japan. And I think you'd really enjoy it. I've seen Yuki at a lot of races since he's moved back, but I haven't actually gone to Japan to visit him or checked out this race. Now, initially, I was supposed to be doing the Transylvania Epic Mountain Bike Stage Race, and I did it last year and some years before that. But last year, there was a lot of adversity, a lot of challenges to be overcome, and I enjoyed my experience, but I had second-degree burns on my body from the night before the race from having a cooking accident, and I had a terrible crash, which resulted in breaking my bike the day before the finish, and I was in the leader's jersey. So there's a lot of things that I had to overcome at this race, and I actually recorded a podcast episode about it with my husband last June, and it was in a hotel room in New York City. So I will actually link that up in the show notes if you want to hear about everything that happened. So I wanted to go back and defend my, well, I, I didn't win, I guess, so I wasn't defending, but I wanted to go back and uh, see if I could win this race. And I was pretty disappointed because they ended up canceling the race in March and the race was supposed to be in May and it's canceled indefinitely, which is a bummer. But it goes to show you that these things don't last forever. There's another race that I love in BC called the NIMBY 50, which I just did uh, about two weeks ago. And their next year is their last year as well. So I understand that race promoters need to move on in their lives after a decade or more of promoting a single race. But it's always disappointing for those of us who love going back to these races. So I was left trying to figure out what I was going to do instead. So it ended up being a positive thing because at the last minute, I decided to race Marathon Nationals in Arkansas, which is a 50-mile distance. But it was literally like two weeks before that I decided to go. But I was glad that I was able to get there. And then also this race in Japan. So Yuki sent me a message saying, hey, what are you doing in May? And Normally, my summer, the entire summer for months is booked every single weekend with things to do. And I actually had like some open time because of this trip cancellation to Pennsylvania. So I said, let me look into this. And I saw that you could fly direct from Vancouver to Tokyo, which is super awesome. 
So I was able to get a cheap and fast flight over there. So it was a nine hour direct flight from Vancouver. So I drove to Vancouver from Kelowna, but you could fly to Vancouver as well. And I got off the plane in Tokyo and Yuki was waiting for me. And it was really awesome to see him again. And it was really interesting to see him in his home country. I was thinking about this a lot. And Yuki's second language is English. His first language is Japanese. And the more I watched him, the more I started thinking, how different would it be if you got to meet your friends in their language, in their first language? Because as a second language, unless you've been, you only speak that language for a really long time, you can't express yourself in the same way. So it was amazing to watch Yuki because I know him as one-on-one, he's not shy, but I knew him as being kind of a shyer person. But in Japan, he is amazingly outgoing and just everywhere. So it was it was really fun to watch him in his own environment and just speaking Japanese to everybody, which I don't speak. We went straight to Shibuya for a coffee and to meet with Yuki's wife, Sayako Akeda. And she also has a cookbook that she made about healthy eating, which I thought was pretty cool. But we went to Tokyo. So Tokyo, you think that it's the city and it's often referred to as the city. But Tokyo is actually the prefecture, like a a province or a state in Japan. And there's a lot of cities that make up Tokyo. So Shibuya is the main city in Tokyo. And that is where Saya works. So we went there and the first thing we did was get a coffee because I've been awake all night. And the most interesting thing I noticed was how quiet the streets were. Tokyo is the second most dense place on the planet. And you would think that it's going to be really crazy, like lots of hustle and bustle, like some of the big cities you see in Europe or in the United States. And that just wasn't the case. Just like walking down the street, things were quiet. It was a soft, hushed murmur. And people were really respectful of one another's space and one another's auditory space. Another interesting thing that I noticed immediately was we were driving in what should be rush hour traffic, and there was hardly any traffic. In in other cities, even in the middle of the day, you're sitting in traffic bumper to bumper, and in, in Tokyo, it just wasn't the case. And I think that I, I heard it's because that it's really expensive to maintain a vehicle, and most people don't have two vehicles, whereas in North America, we have two vehicles per household in a lot of cases, and sometimes even more. The public transportation, though, is amazing and crazy. So that is where all the people were. They weren't on the road in their cars. They were in the train. And I didn't get to go in the train or I didn't have to go in the train during peak rush hour times. But I heard that they actually have employees that physically jam people into these trains packed like sardines as tight as possible so that the doors can simply close. And if they don't have those employees there, they actually can't even shut the door for these trains. And I did go on the train at about 6 p.m. and it was pretty packed, but there was nobody physically shoving people in. And I couldn't imagine what that would be like. So I went to Yuki's house and he lives outside of the hustle and bustle of the city in a a smaller town called Ome. And the first thing that I noticed there was how quiet and how beautiful it was. It was in the rainforest. So Japan has a lot of giant snow-capped mountains, but there's also really big mountains that have lots of different lush trees and animals and things that I actually have never seen before. So we went on a ride and it was really fun to hear different bird sounds. And I I love listening to the birds on my rides and it was just really interesting. And we also saw monkeys and 
I heard that there was monkeys in the race, but I didn't know that there was monkeys in Yuki's town. And you you would see them just like running away. And a friend of mine, uh, Corey Wallace, had done the same race that I was going to go do a year or two ago. And he said that monkeys were actually chasing him. So I was a little bit afraid that monkeys would chase me. But how bad can a monkey be compared to a bear? Although monkeys are actually, I think they're probably smarter than bears. <laughs> we got to eat a lot of amazing plant-based foods. And Japan was a place that I was really curious about for their culinary cuisine because a lot of the foods I eat are Japanese. And tofu and sushi and a lot of these different noodle dishes are Japanese. So the cool thing about tofu in Japan is that it's really different from here. I'm forever spoiled. And the next time I go to Japan, I'm going to bring like a Yeti cooler carry on that way I can bring back tofu because you just can't get the same stuff here. Like here, tofu, you, you definitely need to like season it like you would chicken or marinate it. Tofu just plain by itself doesn't really taste like a whole lot. But in Japan, they have an entire wall in the grocery section of tofu. And I couldn't read the Japanese. I couldn't read any of the packages. So I can't tell you exactly what they all said. But my favorite one, what came in this round package, and it also had this little draining bowl. So you rinse the tofu and then you let it dry. And then all you do is put a little bit of soy sauce on it and eat it plain. And it, the flavor is so good. It's kind of a nutty, earthy flavor. And you just wanted to eat it that way. There's no need to cook it, no need to marinate it. And it just made eating very simple. There was also a lot of really great mushrooms. And I'm a big mushroom fan. And it was a lot cheaper than buying some of those mushrooms from the United States and Canada. And they use a lot of them in soups. A normal part of a meal is they take a broth, they make a, they either make a broth out of seaweed or mushrooms or vegetables, and then they, they put seaweed and tofu and mushrooms and they just like boil it and maybe a little bit of seasoning and it's, it's really good. Or you could make like a miso broth. So there's tons of different types of miso. Yeah, if you guys are curious about how to make your own miso soup, just go to the grocery store, buy miso paste, put the paste in hot water, stir it up a little bit, and you can add like green onions and tofu and mushrooms, and there you go. It's really simple and easy. Another amazing food that I loved was called amazake. And amazake is a fermented rice paste. And they came in different textures. Like there would be thicker amazakes that was seasoned with cocoa powder. So it was kind of like a chocolate, delicious. It's not quite a Nutella texture, but it kind of reminded me of Nutella a little bit without the high calories and the high fat. And then there was also just plain amazake. You could put it on your oatmeal. And the whole fermented foods culture there was off the hook. And I was personally happy because I had gotten sick at nationals and I was on antibiotics. And instead of having to take a probiotic pill to repopulate my microbiome, I actually got to eat all these beautiful fermented foods in Japan. Another food experience I had was with soba. So soba noodles is something that we hear, but we actually don't eat it properly, or at least I wasn't. So I would buy soba noodles at the grocery store, and then I would cook the soba, and then I would serve it with vegetables, like a recipe I have is like with edamame and mango and red bell pepper. And you can definitely do that, but I didn't understand how soba is actually eaten in Japan. So we went to the soba restaurant on the way to the race. So we had about a four and a half hour drive to Otaki, which is where the race actually was from Ome, where Yuki lived. And we stopped on the drive and... 
you walk in and you have to take your shoes off because in Japan you have to take your shoes off pretty much everywhere, even in restaurants. And there's all kinds of different people in this restaurant, including a giant table of businessmen in suits. So we got to the restaurant and of course Yuki ordered everything because the menu is just, it looks like Japanese to me. And the soba was cool. So it comes out, like literally it was cool. It comes out in this wood circular box and they open the box and the soba noodles are served cold. And then they bring, um, it's like a broth sauced out and the broth sauce goes inside of a, a smaller bowl. So what you do is you take your chopsticks and you take a little bit of the soba noodles and you dip it into this small bowl of broth and you, you have to hold the bowl up to your mouth, like pretty close. Otherwise you're going to make a huge mess and just you just coat the noodles with this broth and then you put it in your mouth <laughs> and then you slurp. And this was something that was really hard for me to get used to. I don't know if I'd ever be able to get used to it, but you literally slurp the noodles and it's really loud. So you're in this restaurant and there's people in suits and it's like all fancy. And then you just hear the slurping sounds coming from every which direction. And that is part of their culture. It's not considered rude to slurp. Whereas here, if you're slurping in a restaurant, people are going to look at you like, you're crazy and you're being really rude. So I tried to slurp and I actually had a difficult time actually slurping the noodles in without making a mess. So I think that there's an art to slurping. After that, they bring out another type of broth. It's the broth that they actually cook the noodles in. And I can't remember what it's called, but it's like this milky white broth. And you actually drink it and it has a lot of great nutrients in it. So it was actually really good. It looked a little bit gross, just the texture of it, but it tasted really good. It was fun using chopsticks. So they don't have forks on the tables. <laughs> it's just chopsticks. So I actually did not pick up a fork once while I was there. I guess if I asked for one, they probably would have brought one out, but I really wanted to perfect my use of chopsticks. And the thing that I really enjoyed the most about using chopsticks was that we have forks here in North America and in Western civilization, and we tend to shovel our food in. I know that I do. I'm in a hurry, or I just like the taste, and I don't take the time to take really small bites and savor the flavor. I'll shovel it all in. And with chopsticks, you can't do that. It's basically impossible to shovel food in with chopsticks. Well, maybe if you've been using them your whole life, but I certainly couldn't. So it forced me to slow down with my eating and enjoy and savor the individual flavors. And I probably ended up eating less because it just took longer to eat. The next stop on the trip was Otaki. And Otaki is this amazing village. You, you keep climbing up into the mountains and Otaki sits at around 3,000 feet. And it's not really a valley, but it's, it's in the foothills of these giant mountains. And there is a volcano, Mount Otaki. And it actually is an active volcano that erupted a few years ago, killing people and destroying part of the village. But it was really crazy just to be in a country that has so many live volcanoes and earthquakes are a regular occurrence. And you just take that for granted that we kind of live in a stable landscape where we are. On the way into town, I noticed that there was a lot of shrines and Japanese people are deeply sentimental people. So there's lots of shrines everywhere and there's other things and clues in their culture that led me to calling them sentimental. So we saw this awesome shrine and it's the main shrine in town and the shrine was outdoors. So instead of going into like a church or a temple, you're outside and there's all these cool statues everywhere. And there are these big like rock slabs that are, it kind of looks like a tombstone, but it's just like a giant rock slab taller than me that would have sayings on it in Japanese. 
And we wanted to see this uh, shrine and it's the God of the mountain. So we thought, well, we're doing this race. It's probably a good idea to go ask for the blessing of the God of the mountain. So we started climbing these stairs and there were these stone steps with moss on them. And you heard the sounds of water and birds and just, it was really green because it had just rained. But we couldn't stop ourselves from hiking to the top of this shrine. And it, it was about 500 stairs. And as cyclists, especially as a professional cyclist, you can be pretty one-dimensional. And I think that Yuki and I are probably pretty one-dimensional cyclists because of what happened after. But we hiked up these stairs and it was just amazing. And there's photos I posted on my Instagram. But we were sore. Our calves were sore for like four days afterwards, including being sore in the race. And it was, it was just kind of funny. Like it wasn't detrimental to our race performance, but it was just a funny thing that that happened. The place we stayed before the race or, or during the race was one of the most special places I've ever stayed. It was called Fujiya and it was a bed and breakfast. And Yuki kept warning me that it was really rustic and we've stayed in some pretty rustic places over the years in our races. So there's pretty much nothing that phases me these days. So we show up and it didn't seem rustic to me at all. It seemed amazing. It seemed really authentic. And there was these people outside and nobody spoke English, but they greeted us and they were just so happy to see us. And immediately we felt like family. And it was amazing to feel so welcomed into a culture and into somebody's home where I couldn't even talk to them. And they just treated me like I was one of their family. They cooked all these incredible foods. So the first night, it was just like all these good tofu and mushroom dishes. And they actually grow their own mushrooms out in the back. So they took us out into the back and we got to pick our own shiitake mushrooms that were sauteed and seasoned. And they also forage a lot of their food. So the mama that lives there, she goes hiking in the mountains and picks all the food that they serve. So it's super local and super fresh. And it was just really neat to see that because it's just, it's just rare that you go somewhere and you see the owners of a bed and breakfast farming or foraging their own food. The place wasn't that big. There's probably, I'd say 30 people staying there, but 20 people were staying in one room <laughs> and the meals were just, it was loud. It was awesome. It was family style and everybody was just so happy to be there. And there's just such a culture in that, in that little bed and breakfast, like somebody that stays there regularly made jerseys. And I bought one of the jerseys cause they were so cool. And they have a dog and a cat there with a lot of personality and their kids were there helping. And even the guests were helping just because it feels like you're part of a family. And the interesting thing about the dwelling was that about the, the house was that the walls were really different. So what they do there is instead of building like big drywall walls and small doors, they have entire walls that slide. So the wall is like a sliding door. So you don't even realize that it's a door because the wall just looks like this cool decorated wall. And then it actually slides open, revealing a room. So you can actually change around how your space looks. You can divide it into smaller rooms or you can make it one big space. So I kept finding all these secret rooms. Something else I found interesting was like, I think people do sleep in beds with bed frames, but a lot of people actually just sleep right on the floor. So not actually on the floor, but they have a foam pad or a really thin foam mattress that they fold out onto the floor and you sleep on the floor and then you fold it back up later and put it in your closet. And that's because a lot of people have very small houses and that is because it's a really densely packed country. So to make more room in your house, instead of just having this permanent bed fixture, they would actually sleep on the floor and roll up their bed, put it in the closet and then have more living space. 
I was really, really surprised at how quiet and respectful everybody was. So the race was a 6 a.m. start, meaning that we had to get up around 3 a.m. and there was people up before that. And I was fortunate to have my own room, but, but next to me was a room of 20 people all in one giant room, all sleeping on the floor. And I thought for sure that they would be up before me making tons of noise. And in my experience in sleeping in tents and stage races, there's always really loud people at all hours of the night talking and not even using their inside voice. I guess you're not inside when you're camping, but not using a respectful, quiet voice. And I did not wake up from the people. They were awake before me. I walked by the room on the way to breakfast and they're all just sitting in there quietly. And I couldn't believe how respectful they were of just sound and each other's space. So now I'll get into the details of the race a little bit. So the Otaki 100, it's called the Self-Discovery Adventure. It's a 100-kilometer mountain bike race in the mountains, and it was the biggest race in Japan. It's kind of like the Leadville of Japan. There's 1,500 people at the start. People get there really, really early to line their bikes up so that they can get a good starting position. It really reminded me of Leadville. The course itself has about 7,500 feet of climbing, and it goes between 3,000 and 6,500 feet of elevation gain. So for those of you who live at altitude, and I used to be somebody that lived at altitude, that doesn't sound like very much, but whenever you don't live at altitude anymore, you actually can feel that altitude. It's enough to make a difference. I was fortunate enough to get a starting position on the front. And I was really interested to meet some of the other Japanese riders. And there is a, a girl there named Yuki, same name as my friend Yuki, and she's won the race many years in a row. And she's one of the top endurance racers in Japan. So I was excited to meet her, excited to race with her. And before the race, it was insane. They had this whole expo area and there was a Topeak booth set up that I got to spend some time at. And there were so many people coming and just making me and Yuki feel like total rock stars, like people wanting photos, like lining up and people bringing tons of gifts and wanting autographs. And it was just this like crazy experience where I just felt so humbled by it because everybody was just so excited to meet me and just made me feel so special. So thank you so much, you guys, for making me feel so incredibly welcome in your country. So the race started off bright and early at six o'clock in the morning, and it was a lot harder than I expected. I haven't been doing a ton of riding on dirt roads. I've been riding a lot of single track. That's just what I love. So my training wasn't perfect for this event, and mentally it was just hard to be on, on the road. So the road isn't an easy road. Don't be deceived. You can't really, there's a guy trying to ride a gravel bike, and you just can't because it's way too rocky, and he had a flat tire, and yeah, it was, it was pretty bad for him, but I, it's definitely a full suspension course. And I ran, um, Maxis icon 2.35 tires as well. And I was glad that I did because the terrain was really, really rough. And it definitely was nice to have that extra support in my tires and in my suspension, but it just seemed really long. And I don't know why mentally it was so difficult that day, but what I do in those situations where the race just seems really long and it's just a struggle mentally, like physically, I felt fine. It was just hard. I think it's because I was alone a lot of the race as well. But you break it down into smaller chunks. And normally I say break it down racing aid station to aid station or look at the course profile. But they had to change the course at the last minute because there was a, a landslide. So some of the course profile or most of it wasn't actually accurate. So I think not having a course profile to look at and mentally just break down and strategize in my mind is what made it mentally difficult. So I would just have to break it down into like three to five K at a time and just say, okay, I'm just going to make it three more K. I'm just going to make it three more K. 
and just try and be really present during that 3K, listening to sounds, listening to your breath, looking around. And it was it was cool because, again, we're in the rainforest, but then you would get these views of these humongous snow-capped mountains. And it reminded me of why people go to Japan to go skiing. You don't really think of Japan, or at least I didn't, as being this incredibly mountainous country, and it actually is. My favorite part of the race was close to the end. So number one, they had to reroute us. So there was this really long tunnel that we had to go through that's normally not part of the race. And they told us that we needed to bring lights. Well, I didn't really have lights because I wasn't planning on racing in the dark. So I just had this little reflector blinky topic light that I put on my handlebar that didn't really do very much. Um, it would be enough to protect you from cars, but for seeing in the dark, it's not ideal. So I was able to stay with this one guy in the dark and try to follow his little tunnel of light in front of us through this dark tunnel. But the hard part was you're going so fast and you don't know where the walls of the tunnel are. So you're afraid that you're going to clip your bar and just die in this tunnel. But we made it through and then we ended up catching the other racers. So there were other distances, uh, other people who were doing different distances in this race. So I think there was like a 40 K and a 60 K. So on the last climb, everybody was there from all the different distances. So for me, this helped me so much because I loved seeing all the people and I draw energy from other people. So I was able to, and fortunately I had the energy to cheer for every single person that I saw. And I loved it because I got to watch their faces. I got to see how different people reacted. I got to try and sing different songs to people and just creating that energy and sharing that energy made me feel even better. And I actually rode the last climb of the race faster than any of the other climbs comparatively speaking. So that was actually really funny. And it's a really great example of how your mental headspace can really make a difference in your performance. After the race, we did, well, the next day we did a quote recovery ride, which I started calling Yuki's Revenge. And we did it with two single speeders. Yes, there's a lot of single speeders that do that Otaki 100 race. Oh, and I forgot to mention that I won the race, which is awesome and a huge honor to win that race. So yeah, we did this uh, hill climb the next day and it was a 3000 foot hill climb for the recovery ride. And I was blown, like my legs were sore. I was really tired and we were just riding and it just kept going up and up and up. And when you think you're there, you, you reach the ski area. Nope, you're not there. You go past the ski area, but it was totally worth it because we got to a really high point and you could see all these mountain ranges in every which direction, different mountain ranges. And you got a really great view of the volcano and you could see where it had erupted and there was still ash in the snow and all this crazy stuff associated with volcanoes. Volcanoes are nuts. We went back to the city after that, after a road trip, and um, I want to tell you guys about the bathroom and toilet culture in Japan because it was really different than I was expecting. So like if you go to a gas station in North America, chances are the bathroom is going to be pretty gnarly, even at like the nice truck stops. But in Japan, they take their bathrooms very seriously. So they had these toilets and a friend of mine several years ago had come back from Japan and had spent a fortune on this toilet and I thought he was crazy until I went to Japan and saw that all the toilets were like this. You walk into the stall, the toilet lid opens for you automatically. 
And then all of the toilet seats are heated. So I didn't realize that. So the first time I sat down on one of these toilets, I thought, oh my gosh, the person before me has been sitting here for quite a while because the seat is still warm. But no, they actually heat the toilet seats. And then there's all these buttons. And initially, I didn't really know which button to push because the first toilet I sat on was actually in Yuki's house. So there wasn't any English subtitles as to what each button did. Um, <laughs> but the buttons are a lot of different bidet options. So this little stream of water comes out and squirts you in your nether regions to clean up the mess, so to speak. And you can control the stream. Like there's just all these different options, which I didn't really, I admit I didn't really experiment too much with it. <laughs> but um, in these public restrooms, they actually had like a like little words so you knew which button was flush and which button was the spray. And they even had options for male and female. So you can use your imagination with that. But Every single bathroom I went to was immaculate. They even had a sound machine in each bathroom. So you could like push the little music note and it would make an, a sound so that if you have to make a bodily sound in the bathroom, that other people don't have to hear it. So it, it was really, really crazy. And then the rest stop culture too, like each rest stop has a different theme and it's amazingly clean and it had its own garden, like a beautiful Japanese garden. And the souvenir culture is so big in Japan. So whenever you see somebody, you always bring them a gift. And it's not like a, a massive gift, but it's like a little food gift. And I, I don't know what all the different gifts were because I, I couldn't read the Japanese, but some examples of gifts that people brought me were seaweed, rice wine, sake, mochi and mochi was one of my favorite things so mochi we, we're, we've heard of mochi ice cream here like you can get mochi ice cream which is like a, a rice flour with ice cream in the middle but mochi is actually the rice flour so you can take mochi rice which is like a special kind of rice and you cook the rice and then you make flour out of it and it has this really supple and chewy and delicious texture and taste and then they would wrap the mochi around things like azuki beans so azuki beans is a big part of the food culture there as well so they take these red beans and they mash them up and they put a little bit of sugar or i think maybe even brown sugar because they actually make their own brown sugar in osaka and then you wrap around this this rice flour. And like a lot of the desserts were kind of healthy desserts. It was pretty cool. But I really love the mochi. So that was one of the souvenirs. So you go into these rest stops and there's souvenirs everywhere because everybody is always buying a present for the person that they're going to go see. So we went back to Tokyo and we wanted to spend some time as tourists in the city. And it was raining, but we still walked around everywhere. And it was, it was interesting. Like it wasn't as crowded as I thought. I don't know what I was expecting, but it was crowded for sure, like a city, but we just walked around and basically did a culinary food tour. And Shimano actually has a delicious plant-based restaurant with a famous chef in Tokyo. So we went to the Shimano restaurant and we went to a bunch of other ones. Um, we went to a sushi restaurant. And the cool thing about the sushi restaurant is that it's tiny. It's like you walk in and there's five seats and you sit down and they had plant-based sushi. So my favorite sushi piece I had was baby green onions. So like the tips of all these little green onions on nigiri. And it was just so good. And they also had sparkling sake and I've never had sparkling sake before. And I really enjoyed that. I also got to eat vegan ramen. They have tons of different ramens. A lot of ramen is pork based, but I was happy to be able to get vegan ramen. And they use different soup bases. So they can use a miso base, they can use a soy sauce base, but it was fun to actually eat ramen. And you bet you heard the slurping sounds in the ramen restaurants. There's also quite a big coffee culture in Tokyo as well. And in Shibuya, we went to this coffee shop and 
like Yuki had to do all the translating for me, but you actually get to choose. You just tell them like what you like in coffee, like what flavors you enjoy. And then they make their own blend specifically for you. They grind up a blend of a mixture of different beans specifically for you. And then they make you a cup of coffee. So that was a really cool thing. And another coffee shop we went to was actually ranked number one in the world at one point for the brewing method. And they also roasted their own beans. So I, I bought some beans from there from my coffee machine. I spent a lot of time in grocery stores just because there was so much amazing food and I wanted to bring back a lot. Like something else I really liked was this yuzu vinegar, which is like a citrus vinegar and it's not very pungent like a lot of vinegars are and it doesn't, it's not very acidic. So I brought some back to use a salad dressing and I kid you not, I had about 20 pounds of food by the time I was done in my suitcase. It was crazy not to be able to communicate. So everything was in Japanese. There's not a lot of signs in English and it's weird to feel illiterate. Like that's literally, (laughs) that's literally what it feels like to be illiterate. You just can't read anything and you can't communicate using words. So something that was really unique about this experience for me was that I've had the good fortune to travel a lot and I have always had a strong interest in other languages. So I'm not fluent in any other language except for English, unfortunately, but I can speak several languages enough to get by traveling where nobody else speaks English and and all that good stuff. So like I can speak Spanish and French and some German. And like, if you drop me in any of those countries with not a word of English, I would be fine. I just wouldn't be able to have long conversations. But in Japan, my Japanese is extremely limited. It's, it's limited to what Yuki has taught me on road trips over the years, which is like individual words, not enough to be able to get by. I definitely couldn't read any of the signs. So normally whenever I'm in other countries, I'm trying really hard to speak the language and Matt will be with me. And like an example is we'd be in a Spanish speaking country and I'd be trying to communicate. I'm listening to each individual word that the person is saying, trying to make sense of what they're saying and trying my hardest to get by. And sometimes you can get a little bit mired down in the details. So I'm listening to individual words and Matt doesn't speak any Spanish. So he's watching the person. He's looking at a big picture. And sometimes he would get what somebody was saying before I would, because he'd be watching the big picture and just making sense of that instead of getting stuck in the details. And I actually got to experience the other side of that in Japan because I don't speak the language. So I was just watching what was happening and I was able to really infer what somebody was saying just by watching them. And so you get to watch people's micro expressions and their body language, and you can actually infer quite a bit from that. So I thought that that was fascinating. I also felt like you can get to really know somebody Like you can't actually have a conversation with them, but you could feel just somebody's energy. Like an example would be the people at the Fujia bed and breakfast I stayed at. The two people that owned it, I I felt like I had a relationship with them, even though we actually didn't talk at all. And I think that language is just, I don't know. I started thinking about language and how, how does language, number one, get in our way? And number two, how does it help us? Like what would the world be like if we didn't have language? How would our relationships be different? So then my trip was coming to an end. I had been there for about a week and we had to go to the airport and Yuki's parents surprised us at the airport. They had taken a train just to say goodbye and we had enough time to get some soba noodles. So we had soba at the airport, but I just like couldn't believe that they came all that way to say goodbye and they made this sign for me and it was like a massive sign and it wasn't just Sharpie. And even if they used a Sharpie, I still would have been completely flattered by that, but they painted it and they had stickers and little beads and it was just it was just so so sweet and thoughtful that they would take their time to do that 
And whenever we were saying goodbye, I was going down the escalator and all the three of them were waving to me. And I felt just so emotional and so touched. And I had to hold myself together. Like I kept getting choked up for like the next hour. And normally like in situations where I feel sensitive and choked up, it it passes, but it just wasn't passing. And I actually like, I don't like crying in public and I had to kind of pull myself together and like wipe tears away. And that's a whole other topic of displaying our emotions and how we choose to let some emotions in and how we hide other emotions and how as athletes or as women or as people being sensitive. And I think that the older I get, the more sensitive I allow myself to become. Like I've probably always been a sensitive person, but I've always been concerned with being tough or like, I hate how men always say, oh, like, she was crying at work. I hear that a lot. And it just really frustrates me whenever it's said that way, because then it makes women look weak or emotional in a business setting. So hearing that, like growing up and hearing those things made me kind of a hardened person. Like I wouldn't display anger. I wouldn't display any type of emotion except for happiness in public or or even in front of my family. And that's something that I've been learning how to do is to be more vulnerable in front of people and to show that it's okay to be sensitive. But I still really struggle with that. And that's just a little bit of a a side note. But I don't know if you guys have had those experiences. But for me, like even crying in front of my husband is still I, I still feel like embarrassed about it. And I don't know. It's a weird thing about emotions and how we choose to express them and how we choose to label what's good and what's bad and what's acceptable and what's weak. And I think that strength is actually being comfortable with those emotions and learning how to deal with them instead of pretending they're not there. So that's my little side gig there to talk about for this show. That about wraps it up for today's podcast. And I just really wanted to share with you a bunch of different things from my trip to Japan. I mean, the race is one thing and talking about a race, I think is fun, but I really love culture and I love adventure travel. So I wanted to tell you guys about some of the really unique things that I experienced in Japan that are different from other places I've been. And the thing that I love about Asian countries is that they are so unique. And while there is a lot of Western influence there, I was actually shocked to see how much Western influence had affected this country. But it was still really cool to see some of the traditional things. And I want to go back and I actually want to go to Kyoto where there's a lot more traditional architecture and more of their traditions have been maintained. As a side note, you guys are welcome to join the Plant Powered Tribe Facebook group. It is a free group. There's over a thousand people in there and it's just a a community space where we can publish or, or post about things that we're doing, recipes, maybe healthy lifestyle habits where we can support one another because whenever you're trying to live a healthy life, it seems like we're bombarded with all these unhealthy things that are trying to lure us in. At least I noticed that in my life. So having people around who are doing things that are similar to what you're doing and just the type of things that you consume, the things you see, the things you listen to, all of those things affect your decisions. So that's why I started that Facebook group so that you have a place and I have a place to go where we can feel good and we can feel supported in our healthy lifestyle decisions. 
I have some really fun guests lined up for the next several weeks. I hope you guys enjoy them and give me some feedback. Let me know what you thought about today's show. This is my first solo round I think that I've done. So let me know what you think about that. And also, I really appreciate it if you could leave a review. Just go to iTunes, go to ratings and reviews and just tap hopefully five stars and leave a little note for me. I love reading those and it really makes a difference in the searchability of finding the show. And if you don't want to do that, take a screenshot. Take a screenshot of the show on your phone and just share it on your Instagram or your Instagram stories or anywhere that really helps get the word out. So thanks so much, you guys. I really appreciate that you're listening to the show. It means a lot to me and wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.